Hello, and welcome to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. And we have plenty of news this week. We're taping today a little after 10 a.m. on Thursday, July 20th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we're joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Hey, Margot. Good morning. Sarah Cliff of Vox. Hello. And we're happy to welcome this week Stephanie Armour of the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the table. Good morning. So it's been quite a week, and the week isn't even (laughs) quite over yet. The Senate health bill first got delayed over the weekend due to surgery that sidelined Senator John McCain back home in Arizona. Now we've learned that the senator has brain cancer. We all send him our good wishes, but it's not at all clear when he will be back. Then the health bill appeared to die on Monday night when two conservative senators, Mike Lee of Utah and Jerry Moran of Kansas, said they wouldn't vote for it. That brought the total to four, which is not enough to even start debate. But like the zombie bill this has been, it came back to life, at least sort of, on Wednesday when President Trump had all the senators to the White House for lunch and insisted that they somehow keep their promise to make Obamacare go away. So now Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's in charge of what one senator colorfully described as trying to keep all the frogs in the wheelbarrow, has scheduled a vote for next week, but it's not entirely clear on what. So, Stephanie, where are we? The bill, basically, as far as I can tell, seems to be back. But which? It's kind of the Senate Health Bill 3.0. It is a desire to return to the Senate health bill that initially did not have enough uh, votes to move forward. There is obviously a push to do a full repeal, but the general thinking from the folks I'm talking to is that that will likely fail, but that sets the stage or that opens the window to return back to the Senate health bill. But at this point, there are discussions underway to try and get those holdout people back on board. And some of that could result in tweaks to the Senate health bill. (laughs) So So, we should probably have names for all this. So Senate health bill 3.0 is actually the repeal and delay bill that passed in 2015, right? Uh, well, well I think you were discussing uh, the better. Uh, yes, oh, yes. With BICRA. Yeah, I don't know if it's called BACRA or BCRA, but yes. I think they yes. call it BICRA. BICRA. BICRA with uh, revision seems to be what is gaining the most momentum simply because I think it seems to ha- have the greatest likelihood. Um, you saw the CBO score that came out yesterday on the full repeal and what that would do. And I think that's going to be really hard to get moderates to support. Yeah, I and think that- part of the reason this is so confusing is that the president has had three positions in 24 hours about what he wants to do, you know, and he just t- tweets his views out into the world. And so it's really clear to see how his thinking has evolved. But, you know, over the course of just a couple of hours, he said, let's just let Obamacare fail and we'll take it from there. He said, what we need is a full repeal and we'll deal with the replace part later. And then he said, let's get back on this original comprehensive Senate bill. So uh, it seems sort of like all strategies are being pursued at once. But but Sarah, I want to go back to the, the, the repeal and delay, because that was what mm-hmm. they did in 2015, and it seemed to briefly at least come back to life. It did. It had this moment of resurgence. I think all of us remember back in January when Senate Republicans considered repeal and delay. And, and explain one, what repeal and, and delay is. And repeal and delay is the idea you pass a bill that repeals Obamacare and delays the effects until two years later. So presumably in the interim, they would come up with a plan to replace it. So the idea, it kind of assumes there is some plan out there, although that is a somewhat shaky assumption at this point that you can actually, if you pass repeal and delay, that this replacement plan will actually follow because we've seen it's quite hard for 
Republicans to agree on a plan. Of course, um, President Trump says if they do repeal and delay, then the Democrats would come in because, after all, yes. if they didn't do it, so it's there's a bit of hurt. magical thinking that once you get rid of Obamacare, the Democrats will just be forced to come to the table and they'll they'll work on this plan. I don't really see that from the Democrats I talk to. They kind of have this, you know, you break it, you buy it. We're not getting you out of the mess. Um, in either case, we had a CBO report come out Tuesday night that estimated 32 million people would lose coverage under repeal and delay if the replacement ever came. But I, what I thought was actually the most interesting number in that report was the fact that 17 million would lose coverage the the first year of repeal and delay. So repeal and delay feels like a bit of a misnomer that the effects would be quite immediate. Um, CBO estimates because the individual mandate disappears in the first That's year. That's right. There's, there's no delay to there's getting no rid of the individual and, mandate. Um, yeah, so but it's, it's not just, yeah. it, you know, if you read what CBO says, it's not just the individual mandate. So the individual mandate results in some people losing coverage. But what they said is the main thing is that the insurers know what's coming. And obviously they do. And so the whole theory of repeal and delay is that you would basically have everything just coast along status quo until all of a sudden everything falls off a cliff. <laughs> But the very thing that would be the motivation for there to be political compromise, which is the recognition that the cliff is coming, of course, influences the behavior of people in the meantime. So insurance companies don't want to make these big investments in this market if there's not going to be a market in the future. And I think a lot of consumers also, once they hear that Obamacare has been repealed, even if there is this kind of you know time delay on it, probably would be less likely to sign up. And so what CBO said is that a lot of insurance companies are just going to say, no, thank you. I don't want to participate in this zombie market in the meantime. Well, and don't forget that we were talking about the, all these people losing coverage right before the 2018 midterm elections, and that's got away heavily on the minds of Republicans, which is why I think to some extent there's talk once again of let's go back to Bikra and see if we can get the the four or more people who are against it to see if we can get them on board. That's right, because after we had a number of people, as soon as they sort of came up with a let's go back to repeal and delay, you immediately had the three moderate women say, yeah, we're not going to vote for that. So that sort of came back to life and seemed to die within about three hours. Um, but then going back to, to the, the previous iteration that they were still working on, you had both moderates and conservatives. And I guess that's what the meeting last night in the Senate was about, this closed door meeting that, you know, trying to get people to yes, but People seem to need diametrically opposed things to get to yes. Right. Anything you do to move it to appease individuals like Mike Lee or some of the conservatives, you're going to lose the moderates even more. And at this point, the big thing for McConnell is he needs to try and get enough votes for at least a motion to proceed, for a motion to get something on the floor. Because once it's on the floor, anything can happen. Amendments can happen. But it's still not clear how he's going to get those votes. Yeah. And I guess, you know, what McConnell was saying yesterday is that, you know, you, and I think this is what the president was saying, just vote to open up debate and anything can happen. But is that going to, will that pacify some of these people, both on the moderate and conservative side, who are worried about what might emerge at the end? It's, it's a really interesting strategy to me because it seems to be predicated on the idea that if they can just open debate, there'll be some momentum and it will be politically harder for senators to vote against whatever the final product is. Republican and senators. Republican senators. And there will be opportunities for them to kind of bring forward amendments that they want and have them considered and, you know, maybe feel like they have at least tried to do what they want to do to the bill. But the downsides seem pretty substantial, too, because – because of this special budget reconciliation process that they're using, there is just like an open season amendment process where 
an unlimited number of amendments brought by both Democrats and Republicans can be raised and voted on. And, you know, McConnell really doesn't know what those votes could be. I think several of them could be quite politically challenging for his members. Of course, uh, Republicans from his own caucus could bring up amendments that could be unpredictable. It just it just strikes me that perhaps this is the best strategy for passing it if you don't think you have the votes. But it does mean that your members are going to have to vote on a lot of things that are going to be difficult for them to vote on. And if that process does not end in the bill uh, succeeding, like it seems like kind of a costly process. Although the reconciliation nerd in me keeps liking to to point out when they talk about this open amendment process that amendments to reconciliation, unlike most amendments in the Senate, that Senate is relatively free about the types of amendments you can offer. But in this budget process, they have to be germane to the bill and they can't add to the deficit. Mm-hmm. So you either have you have to pay for them, and it, or they can, but you'd have to get a sixty vote point of order, which would be very difficult. Although you never know with what they might offer. Um, it, it, so, which, which brings me sort of the, to the big question here of, is this bill dead or not? <laughs> I want to go around the table, Stephanie. I do not think it's dead. I think that the individuals who are opposed to any kind of repeal are very concerned about what could happen. They're very concerned that um, certain senators um, uh, Senator Portman and some others, Senator Heller, um, are kind of wavering and that something could still change in the di- dynamic. But frankly, I think it is a very, very much a long shot as to whether they're going to get there. And I also think that they risk, quite frankly, not only pushing off so much of the agenda they need to get to, but at a certain point, dragging out this process, I also think starts to look bad for President Trump and the Republicans. Margo? Oh, gosh. I mean, who can say? You know, I'm just trying to count votes, and I don't think they've got them. I don't think that there are enough votes for either of these proposals that are on the table or for some set of minor modifications. And I do think that Senator McCain's illness makes that math even more difficult for them. You know, of course, it's possible that he would come back to vote on this, but it sounds like probably he's undergoing some kind of treatment and is rightly prioritizing his health over this bill. You know, there seems to be some newfound momentum. I mean, you do, they're having these meetings, they're talking about things, senators are are coming out into the halls and speaking with reporters with a new kind of optimism. But I still feel like there are quite a few senators who have said that they do not support either of these options. And so I just don't know how they kind of get it over the line. Sarah? I think the bill is alive in the sense that it is still dominating the news, dominating Republicans' attention, you know, that it's sucking up the energy. I think Monday which I cannot believe is only two or three days ago. Um, yeah, is it Friday yet? Yeah. No. <laughs> Monday, you know, you saw this talk, we're going to move to tax reform, and, like, this is done. And it's not dead in that way. It's it's very much alive in terms of being the main policy focus, but it feels dead in terms of actually passing, if that makes sense, that, like Margo was saying, it's very, very hard to see how the votes come together. So it's kind of a terrible situation for Senate Republicans where this thing that it doesn't seem like they can pass is still sucking up all the energy and attention and debate and they're not moving on. They're kind of stuck on this thing that they can't move forward. Is that why, I mean, there was this this rumor that's been going on for months now that Senator McConnell would bring a bill to the floor to fail, which is just so unusual that that a Senate majority leader would bring a bill to the floor that they know would fail. But in this case, that he almost needs to prove to the president that 
they did everything they could and couldn't do it. Do you think that's what's going on here? I think it's pretty clear that the president wants people on the record and has throughout this whole process. If you remember the first time that the House bill came up for a vote, the House whips did not have the votes. And the reason why they voted is because the president insisted, no, 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 go on the floor, put people on the record. They're going to have to vote for it or I'm going to know who didn't. And, you know, Leader Ryan uh, went to the White House, you know, sort of at the 11th hour and said, like, this is going to be really embarrassing. It's not going to be good for us. Like, don't make us vote. And they pulled it off the floor. But I think, you know, President Trump's calls for a Senate vote and his desire to sort of not just have people publicly telling reporters and putting out statements that they won't vote, but actually voting against the package is driving this process to some degree. So I want to talk about President Trump. Margo, you you brought it up because um, I think he's had, shall we say, a unique uh, role in this entire sort of uh, saga that's that's consumed the last seven months of, of all of our lives. Has he helped this in any way or has he heard it or Sarah? I don't think he's helping it. And it's really I think a lot of maybe all of us covered President Obama in his push for health care. And it feels pretty night and day looking like listening to the two presidents talk about health policy. There were those um, Blair House meetings back in 2010. Yeah, I think so. I yeah, think right before it finally passed. Um, right before it finally passed where, you know, senators would raise objections and President Obama would give an answer. It, it was pretty clear that he had a good grasp of health policy. He went to the House Republican retreat and took questions. And they were on (laughs) C-SPAN. And you understood and there was an understanding of insurance markets and of health care costs. And you don't really see that with um, President Trump. There's an interview he did yesterday with some of Margo's colleagues at the Times where he estimated that health insurance ought to cost $12 a year, which, you know, when I interview Obamacare and Rollies and I ask them how much health insurance should cost, they don't say $12 a year. They say 50 or 100 bucks a month because they, they understand what the insurance market is like. They have like a reasonable kind of ballpark. And it really just suggests, you know, elsewhere in the interview, he says, I know health care really well, but most of his public statements about it really suggest that they're isn't a good grasp. And that makes it very, very hard for him to make the case to someone like Senator Collins of of why this bill should pass when you don't understand what is in the bill, when you can't make an affirmative case for how it'll fix health care. It is hard to win over senators who who currently don't want to vote for the bill. But I I think hindsight will be 2020 here. So I think now that we all think that the bill's chances are very poor, I think it's easy to say that President Trump's involvement has been unhelpful. But I do think that one thing he's done throughout this process is really push members of Congress and congressional leadership to keep trying even after they think that they can't do it. So, you know, when the House had to pull that uh, vote off the floor, you know, I think President Trump was quite instrumental in saying, no, 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 you must keep trying. This isn't over. This is a really important priority. And I think that you know, the Speaker of the House had said Obamacare is the law of the land. It was clear he wanted to move on and the president pushed him and then it did get over the line in the House. And I think we've seen a similar dynamic this week in which, you know, it was seemed clear that the Senate didn't have the votes and it seemed like they were going to just kind of quickly d- dispatch with this and move on. And it was President Trump who said, no, I want to have all of these senators over for dinner. It's really important that we not betray our promise to repeal Obamacare. Now, if it fails in the end, none of that will have mattered. And I think it is certainly true that he does not have a great grasp of health policy and that he is not negotiating with these senators on the fine points. But I do think his persistence may turn out to be an important variable if this does, in fact, succeed. And I also think you see a change. Like, he really was fairly hands-off in terms of the process in the Senate so far, and that has really changed after it was clear they didn't have the votes. And what was kind of remarkable about the meeting that he had yesterday was that he clearly had 
kind of specifically was stronger on some of the policy details. He spoke specifically to senators and he was sort of using what what he's known for in terms of his art of the deal of really putting some pressure on. And I think that the holdouts really realized that there could be candidates that are run against them in the primaries. And that puts a lot of pressure on them. And I think that there's sort of been a, a shift in his tactic just since it was clear that the bill didn't have the votes to pass. And how that will play out, I don't know. I think that senators don't like to be called out necessarily like that. Um, I also think, do you remember when he put out that tweet that said um, that we should just go ahead and repeal the bill? That was when they were still trying to get votes. And I know that that was seen as a formidable challenge and kind of what restarted the call for repeal. And that really complicated McConnell's efforts to get votes. So I do think you've seen some steps that have kind of really hurt the process. But I do think the verdict's out on what's happening right now in terms of his approach. So let's assume for a second that what we think is going to happen will happen and that they'll put this vote up. It's a procedural vote. There's no debate. It either goes up or down. Assuming it goes down and there's no bill, what happens next to the Affordable Care Act? I mean, I think all of us have been watching the marketplaces pretty closely and that you kind of see a struggle for some of those to stay afloat. I did a bit of reporting yesterday talking to um, you know experts who follow them, who have run the marketplaces historically. They're a little bit mixed on how badly 2018 could go, but they certainly expect maybe some counties won't have insurance plans. Um, Nevada, for example, is struggling right now with, I think, 14 of its or nine, a large, a double-digit number of counties but have no but it's worth health saying plans. But they are counties point. in which very yes. few Nevadans live. So it's a yes. problem that those people won't have insurance. Yeah. But you're not. It's not. Uh, I feel like county numbers sometimes they are can misleading. Be, yeah. That's true. They can yeah. be misleading. And in I a think, lot of those counties, yes. there's like 500 people. I mean, literally, there's like 500 people right. in some of these counties. But what about states that are running their own exchanges? California. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, California Washington. seems pretty, pretty solid. I think states that want to make Obamacare work are generally finding ways to make it work. Washington state was instructive, for example. They had two counties with no health plans. And the regulator, you know, went out, knocked on some doors, you know, really wanted those places to have plans. And now the whole state is covered. So you might see a bit of a disparity between states that want to make the Affordable Care Act work and can go the extra mile and states that have taken more of a hands-off approach where the insurance regulator is quite critical of the Affordable Care Act, they might have a very different experience next year. But I think it also comes down to what happens with the cost-sharing subsidies, mm-hmm. the payments to insurers. I think that need, that's and being closely watched. Explain this again. What yeah, <laughs> this, this is the um, administration right now pays billions of dollars to insurance companies to help offset the cost of um, these subsidies that go to low-income consumers to help them pay with their out-of-pocket costs. Right. So this is a, in addition to the premium help they get help yes. paying their out-of-pocket. Yes. And out-of-pocket it's been unclear month to month whether these would continue under the Trump administration. And so far they have been. And insurers we talked to said that they found out that they're being paid this month. But the question is, will those continue if the bill fails or will uh, President Trump just decide to end those payments unilaterally. And I also think if the bill fails, you will see some growing talk about some kind of bipartisan stabilization mm-hmm. legislation, pr- potentially uh, through a children's health insurance program that ne- needs to be reauthorized for funding. 
by um, September 30th. So on a short, uh, on in a pretty, yes. pretty near future. Yes. Um, so I think you're going to see potentially more and more talk about that, although conservatives obviously would be very upset if that was the approach that's taken. I think the Trump administration has some pretty big decisions before it if this legislative effort fails. They have been pretty unfailing in their criticism of the law, in their efforts to not help the parts of the law that need help and perhaps to even undermine some of the parts of the law that uh, don't need to be undermined. And, you know, we see Secretary Price, for example, is putting out tweets and statements and videos all the time that are criticizing the law and saying that it has all of these problems. Uh, We've seen, you know, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services sort of publicizing lists of counties that don't have insurers in a kind of enthusiastic way where they seem to be like, look at how things are failing. And we saw President Trump, you know, both in a tweet and in public statements to reporters this week say that his plan, if this legislative effort fails, is just to let Obamacare fail and then that will bring the Democrats to the table. And I think that there is an argument that making Obamacare look as bad and as troubled as possible is a, is maybe a good incentive during a live congressional negotiation to try to bring your people to the table. You know, if there are senators who have some reservations about the bill, you know, I think what the Trump administration has tried to do is say, well, you know, the alternative is not utopia. The alternative is this failing, horrible, flailing system. But I do think that that calculus really must change in a situation in which they know that they can't fix it. So, you know, I'm really curious about whether President Trump and Secretary Price start thinking differently in the aftermath of this legislative effort. You know, will they will they help or will they hurt? And I think they have a lot of power to make things work better or worse, especially, as Sarah said, in these states where local officials don't have a really hands on. And I think a good point Margot makes is. President Trump often talks about Obamacare failures as this, like, set moment on the horizon. And I think it's actually more accurate to think of it as the result of a lot of policy decisions. They'll be made in one way or another. The Affordable Care Act doesn't really run on autopilot. It relies a lot on what the administration does to manage it. And you could manage it in a way that encourages health insurance companies to participate. You could manage it in a way that discourages them. But failure is not this thing that is looming out there that will or won't happen, it really relies on decisions that will be made over the next few months, like the ones Margot talks about. But they're actively working. I mean, the decisions they've made so far are actively working to undermine it. Things, I think just this week, they've, they've canceled the money for the, the navigators to, to the, these are the people who help, you know, work, people work through the enrollment process, which is pretty complicated. Call centers, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And they have done some steps to help shore up the markets, especially for what insurers wanted um, in the short term. And I really think there's been a desire to try and keep things floating along until there could be some kind of repeal or replace. But at this point, I don't see any signs that the Trump administration would work or take significant steps to try and help the ACA markets if the legislation fails. Um, that could change, but I think that would be such a major um, about face and strategy and tactic that it's just hard to see. I think you'll see a lot of waivers that will be encouraged and pursued that will allow states to do more things as much as they can to roll back parts of the ACA or or to really impose new requirements on Medicaid. 
All right. Well, we'll definitely know more next week once we've had this vote that we are supposed to have next week. Um, We're going to wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story that they read recently that they think everyone else should read, too. And don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Stephanie, we're going to start with you. You have a short Extra Credit assignment this week, yes? Yes, I do. I'm going to... uh point out Sam Stein, who had what I think is the best tweet so far. He's the politics editor at the Daily Beast. It's at Sam Stein. And uh, it was this wonderful picture and description of uh, a high-risk pool, and it was literally a swimming pool with an alligator. Perfect. (laughs) Margo. Oh, this is going to be like a Sam Stein uh, admiration society here, because I actually want to recommend an article that he wrote that was published today called Team Trump used Obamacare money to run PR effort against it. And it gets into some of what we were just talking, but he really details, uh, you know, quite extensively all of the ways in which the Trump administration, Department of Health and Human Services, has been actively trying to undermine the law, that they've uh, spent a lot of money on, like, sort of video efforts and uh, other kinds of aids to talk about how bad the law is, including potentially flying people in from outside of the country and paying a contractor to make these videos. And also in what was sort of the most surprising uh, development to me, they have completely uh, reshaped the website, the HHS and Obamacare websites, to basically make it harder for people to figure out how to sign up for insurance and instead to sort of use those websites as an opportunity to criticize the law and talk about its failures. And I think those are the kinds of changes that feel small and cosmetic but really could have an effect on people as they try to explore their options next year. Sarah? Um, I'm going to go a little bit outside outside of both the Sam Stein realm and the uh, Affordable Care Act realm to recommend um, an edition of the Vitals newsletter from Axios um, this past Monday, July 17th, which had a really interesting item about how the declining birth rate in the United States is bad business for American hospitals. Um, I often write about the very good parts of the declining birth rate. A lot of it is fewer teen pregnancies, a lot fewer unintended pregnancies. But if you are a hospital that is used to delivering a lot of babies and making a lot of money off of that, having fewer births can actually be a financial struggle, which is a side of the story that I had not thought about as much until I read this item in Vitals. Yes, I remember learning that that uh, labor and delivery is, is by far the number one reason for people to be admitted to the hospital. Um, I also have a hospital story this week. Uh, it's called How Hospitals Got Richer Off Obamacare. It's by Dan Diamond at Politico. Dan's been working on this story for more than a year, and it details in a painstaking way how not-for-profit hospitals, including some big ones whose names you will recognize, Johns Hopkins, Cough Cough, Cleveland Clinic, uh, lobbied hard to keep their tax-exempt status during the debate over the ACA and in the years since have systematically cut back on the community benefits that they provide that supposedly make up for the taxes that they don't pay. So some hospital reading this week. Um, That is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. You can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org with suggestions for future shows. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Stephanie? Def Armor 1. Margo. I'm at Sanger Katz. And I am at Sarah Cliff. Great. Thank you all very much. We will be back in your feed soon with more news. In the meantime, be healthy.